All right, quick question. You walked in here this morning and we had that little singing thing that we do. You know, that singing thing. Right? I know for some people, they don't know what to do with that. Right? So it's just that singing thing that we do. All right, so you're here this morning and you barely sang this morning. You're here after a week or maybe a couple of weeks or maybe a month and you have not only not read your Bible, but you haven't even thought about reading your Bible. may not even know where your Bible is. And you just really haven't had this desire to read your Bible. So let's just suppose that's your condition and you walked in here today. I'm not quite sure what I would liken that to, but if you showed up at a hospital and they couldn't find a pulse, the emergency room would take drastic measures, wouldn't they? I mean, they'd be freaking out. Somebody would throw you in an ambulance and rush you off because something that is definitive of being alive is absent in you. It's a cause to medically panic. If you can come in here on a Sunday morning, I'm not saying this to chastise anybody. I'm I'm saying this to make you accurately aware of your own condition. You come in here and you barely sing. That's an affection issue. That's a, I don't really have anything spilling over in my heart about God that's just waiting to pour out of me. And if you can look back and say, you know, I didn't fight for time, crave time, desire time with God and to learn of him and stare at him through his word that I might behold the beauty and the wonder of who he is. If that's your condition, then someone needs to panic. I know it's normal that that kind of condition goes on and on and on for some people. Like, that, like that's their Christianity. Right? As a spiritual medical professional, can I just tell you? You should panic. If what I just described describes you, you should panic. You should run to a doctor. You have a a, a disease, a serious disease taking place. But it's just kind of common. So I know sometimes we overlook that. I'd I'd like to, before I even get into the message here, I would like for you to panic with me. Can you panic with me if that's, does that look what what panic looks like in your face? I'm just looking at your faces. Are you panicking? All right. In your notes, I want you to write something down before I get into the meat of this. Write this down. Do not be surprised. All right? Everybody write that down. Do not be surprised. And so at the end of this message, I hope that you are better equipped to not be surprised. Last week, we... In our Enchanted series, we got to follow the story of the man in Psalm 73 who found himself out of sorts. Life is upside down. He hates the way life is going. He hates the way life feels until he entered the sanctuary of God. And he had an encounter with God in that moment. Something happened for him. Something reset that. All that disorientation, all that angst in his heart, all that I hate my life feeling... He met something in God. And when he saw that, 
it overcame his displacement and his struggles. It's like he, he was enchanted by the good life of the world, but then he had an encounter with God where he became enchanted with God. And that enchantment overcame that enchantment. Right? So we learned last week that we fight enchantment in this world with enchantment. Right? So the answer in the Christian life to the temptations of our life and to the things that lure us is not to answer that with nothingness, with stoic, conservative, don't do anything, make your box smaller, live within a smaller confining space because the last thing in the world you want to do is be drifting off into worldliness. That's not the answer. The answer is to become more enchanted with something else that is tempting you to be enchanted with it. So we, so we fight enchantment with enchantment. But we're, we're starting to use some interesting language here. Fighting. These are fighting words in these messages. And the title today is The War Between Sarks and Numa. In our little bit of our fantasy world that we've created for this series, this land of enchantment called Kairos. There's something in this land. It's, it's, it's a war. And one of the things I want us to be aware of, and one of the primary reasons that I felt like the Lord wanted this, this is one of the first things the Lord had awakened in my heart as we were putting this series together, was for the sake of awareness, for the sake that you and I don't get surprised as we venture into the land of life and, and we find stuff in this land. Right, this, we've already covered this. This land is a natural-minded land. It teaches you to go blind to spiritual things. So you're not looking for spiritual stuff, right? When you read the latest news out there and come across, you read something, you go to college, you, you pick up the newspaper, you follow the news, you, you, you're going to hear something in the realm of, uh, of people and possessions, something of, of man and molecules, right? It's all natural kind of stuff that's in our world. And when you go to school to get educated, uh, you're going to learn things like math and science Maybe some history and some language so you can communicate with the world around you. It's not trying to teach you about unseen things. Maybe if you took a philosophy class, maybe. For the rare few people who get involved in a religion class, maybe you get introduced to something that you can't see. But, but God, God is very good about it. If we read our Bibles, it doesn't read like your fifth grade history book. It is God trying to take you behind the scenes. It is God saying, I know you see your world and you see people in it and stuff happens and you travel through time and you touch things and you own stuff, etc. But God then pulls the veil back and says, there's a whole nother realm here of spiritual activity going on. So that when you travel through this land of Kairos, you guys remember that Kairos is just, it's, it's the land of our moment. It's this year, it's this current season that we're in. Wherever you are and wherever we are as a group of people, we're traveling through this land. In this land, there is this strange war going on in the land of Kairos. Read my little fantasy beginning here. In the land of Kairos, there is a war, a long-standing struggle and ever-present contention. 
Yeah, it's not discerned as one listens to the wind rustling through autumn leaves or the sea as it laps against the shoreline. This war has altered the course of every life that it touches. It is the rewriter of personal scripts and the great influencer of tribes and nations. It awakens ambitions and stirs the fears of young and old. It plants doubts and creates regrets and provides the dawn of much discouragement. Its casualties outnumber all the wars of history combined. But it is not observed on the open seas or in the strategic urban centers. And its weapons are not scattered on the pages of history books. For it is an internal war fought in the hearts of men. It is the battle between Sarks and Numa. Right, you know, we kind of behind, we got our little land laid out there. Remember, our land had labels all over it, and there's all kinds of terrain that you and I might encounter. And so we, we, like anybody, like if I'm, if I'm trying to get home after work, I consult my traffic app and I find the path of least resistance. Isn't that what you do? Right, you're going, what's the quickest way? You know, and the, the little app comes up and it shows you like three ways to go. I'm not why, you know, here's a way that takes you two hours. It's like, well, I got a way that takes me 30 minutes. Why would I want two hours? But it offers you that. No one takes that, right? I want the path of least resistance when I do life. Well, I'm going to navigate land here. You're going to navigate land. You're going to navigate the land and the terrain of your life going into 2018. No one stops in January and says, hey, let's see, what's the most horrific, difficult way I could do life this year? No, no one's got that strategy going on. We're trying to find the easiest way possible to get across this terrain. So we're picking places. And we know, avoid certain places. Because you know, if I were to say, hey, there's war in the land, you'd say, yeah, I can imagine so. There was a little place over there called Conflict Canyon. I remember that little place. Uh, yeah, I can imagine there's some, some war over there. Maybe the desert of despair. That, that sounds pretty difficult. I don't think I want to travel through that terrain here. But here's what's going to catch you off guard. The war is in the land, but the real problem is the war is in you. No matter where you travel. No matter what terrain you end up in. So let's suppose this year, in your future, is the lake of love. You're going to fall in love this year. You're going to find a soulmate. Y'all know how much I love that term, right? more like a cellmate than it is a soulmate but anyway it's just, and this is not a marriage counseling class but anyway uh. <laughs> so you're going to venture into this this terrain of, of love and excitement you're going to settle down in the planes of pleasure you're going to find something you really enjoy doing you're going to thrive in that and it's going to be off the charts this year it's going to be wonderful Right? This, these are the places we want to travel through. Are you just going to do daily life in familiar forests? Just the everyday routines of life, the regular old stuff, you know? It's not really bad. There's no, not drug dealing going on here. There's, there's, you know? What's going to surprise you is that the war is going to travel with you into those locations. This unique, strange war will go with you into the lake of love, into the plains of pleasure, into places that you didn't think. It's like, man, 
I thought I chose a good path through the year this year. I thought this was going to be good. Remember what you wrote at the beginning of your outline there? Do not be surprised. Now, unfortunately, uh, you live in a church culture that if you're listening to enough stuff that's out there, uh, you, you, are, you are actually being made very vulnerable to being surprised, to being caught off guard, to, being, to find yourself in the crossfire of war because you're kind of not being taught to notice that kind of stuff, to value it or to appreciate that the Bible teaches about it, right? So the church is, you know, the, the church community, the church world out there today is it's very big on positivity, I'm not even sure that's a word, but they've turned it into a word, positivity. Um, But, you know, it's not real big on negativity. As a matter of fact, I I will hear from you if I get too negative in a message. It's like a a warning light goes off on your dashboard. I'm not sure who installed your dashboard, but a warning light goes on. It's like, oh, you know, that doesn't feel positive enough. Because somehow we've we've been taught through the years that, that faith is a positive thing. And we need to think positively, right? By the way, you didn't learn that from the Bible. The positive mental attitude movement didn't come from the Bible. It did come in the last century, but this didn't come from the Bible. So we're not, we're not prepared for things that are negative feeling. We almost feel like we're out of bounds. Something isn't right. We, we've heard a lot, been taught a lot about rewards. Life should be rewarding, right? It should feel a certain way to us, but, but we're not prepared for loss, Life has loss in it as well. We're taught a lot about our desires and our dreams. We're told to dream big, have big dreams and have desires. And those are validated. And and many, many messages, this is where you don't pick up on this until you listen for it. Many messages, when they go to tell you why you should do whatever it is the preacher is trying to get you to do, he hangs the carrot in front of you of you finally getting the dreams that you've always desired. See, I hear that stuff and it screams at me. It's like, what Bible are you reading from? When you get programmed to think life is about rewarding me and fulfilling my desires and my dreams, and that's what God's about too, you're going to be really, really surprised by things like delay, sacrifice. When you sacrifice something, you have this in your possession, and then you made some kind of a decision. Life traveled into a place where you sacrificed that, and then when you go back and check again a little while later, you ain't got it no more. You just suffered loss. But if you have a value for sacrifice, that's not a bad thing. But if you don't have a value for sacrifice, you will not like that day. Serving. The Bible's real big on serving. Do you know serving will cost you something? It will cost you relational time. It will cost you to be around people you don't really want to be around. It won't feel like a positive if you've been programmed to only feel rewarded by the things that serve you. Actually, in those moments, you're probably not really serving at all. They're serving you. Right? You know, we, even, we, we teach people the power of prayer. Let's teach them about the power of prayer. You know, and what's hanging in front of that is so that you can get what you want. But the church isn't teaching people about the Garden of Gethsemane. When the Son of God stands and says in prayer, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. 
nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It might be in teaching that in prayer. I say we're vulnerable to being very surprised, but the Bible's really helpful here. It's, it, it doesn't want us to be surprised. It wants us to, to be prepared, right? First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 in your outline there, it says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And that's an interesting little construction, the words in this uh, one phrase here. The word surprise and the word strange are almost the same exact word. They come from each other. So it's got this strange build-in here. There's this element that this word surprised has to do with things that are strangers to you. Right? So from that word in the Greek language, we actually get the word for hospitality. Because you show hospitality to strangers. Right? So you're actually building a bridge into a stranger's life. You don't even know this person. But you have extended comfort and care. Make yourself at home. So this is what that verse is saying. Make yourself at home with fiery trials. And when they come, don't act like something strange is going on. Right, now this honest question here. When things don't go positive for you, do you feel like something strange is going on here? Like, like God fumbled. Or how could he let this happen? You know, right? This is outside the box. This is, I don't understand this. I'm not saying we're always going to understand things. But I do want us to be aware that the 21st century in America is teaching us how to read the Bible. And teaching us how to interpret things. So if I install this grid, as we've said throughout this series. If I install this grid as I look out at life and I think life is supposed supposed to be a certain way it's supposed to be about imminent things right here right now them being rewarding them flourishing things going well with me positivity in this little realm of my life if my grid is validating personal flourishing right so I've been taught by the culture that if life is being done right I will be personally flourishing You will make me feel a certain way. Circumstances will go a certain way for me. So this is the grid through which we do life. And when that happens, we begin to install thoughts and expectations for things. We we think life should be rewarding. It should always be rewarding. So, So what happens in the day where it doesn't feel rewarding? I think something strange is going on. Are you prepared for your life to not feel rewarding? I mean, does that shock you when that happens? Right, we, we are venturing through the land and we're trying to find right, the path of least resistance and we want something that's kind of easy on us. It's going to take it easy on us. It's not going to be too hard. So what do we do when life feels hard? Doing something requires me to go outside my comfort zone. Remember Christians, we used to have that phrase in our life? Get outside of our comfort zone. Now we just design our whole life to be a comfort zone. So when we have to get outside of it, it feels strange. You know, the church is asking me to do something. Well, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I've got the ability to do it. I feel really uncomfortable doing that. And I definitely don't have the time. Right? So all that's uncomfortable to us. 
What about working through issues, conflicts with one another? Your marriage, you have hard conversations. You know it's not going to go well, so you just avoid that. And if it is hard, and it didn't respond, and, and it ended up the way you thought it would, we, we, well, there must be something wrong here. There's something strange going on. And the Bible turns around and says, make yourself at home, pull up a chair. This isn't strange. I told you it would be this way as you cross this land in your life. And the Bible's really good about informing us of these things. And if you'll read the Bible this way, I just grabbed a couple of passages so you can have your eyes in tune to, to seeing this when you're reading the Bible. Right, jump all the way back into Genesis and you have God installing these kinds of moments. Remember, Genesis 12 and 15 is God making these enormous promises to Abraham. I'm going to make you my own people. I'm going to bless you. The nations are going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. Right, wonderful promises. So this is God being positive. Thank you, God, for joining in in positivity. And then he turns around and tells Abram this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Come on, God. Haven't you read anything about positivity? And here's the God who could change all that. And he says, I've got no plans on changing that. That's going to be your experience. But what I, what I love and what I want us to see in the Bible is that God doesn't want Abraham or his descendants caught off guard by that. I don't want you to be surprised in the day that you wander into a land and you are there for over 400 years and you experience the affliction in that land. That's what I want you to be aware of is in the future for you. So that when it happens, you're not going, whoa, am I so caught? Something strange is happening. I don't have an explanation for why life could possibly be like this. Now, listen, in the mind of God, I can't explain why God's pathway for these people involved that. But I'm not asked to understand why God did that for that period of time. I'm just asked to be informed about it. Right, so I kind of live at a lower pay grade. And then you run all the way into the New Testament. And I picked these verses because th- this is Paul's parting comments. He's doing two things here. First Timothy, he's preparing a young man to be a pastor. And he's giving him insights on how to lead and interact with the people that he's going to be responsible for leading them through the land that Timothy was to lead them through. And then the second Timothy is about two, three, four years later... And it's like the last thing Paul's going to write. It's the end of his life. And he's going to offer some wisdom, some advice, and his closing remarks before he's done here on earth. Right, so 1 Timothy says something like this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Don't be surprised. Right, if, if you come across somebody whose faith has taken a downturn, somebody who's not walking with God, somebody who's into something bizarre, you're like, oh, they used to go to my small group and they're into what? Uh, now, not that we should be going, oh, I'm so glad, but neither should we be surprised. 
Because this terrain that the church would have to cross, called the the later times, would have these kinds of things going on in it. Because there's a war in the land. It's not peacetime. And in that war, in that conflict, there are setbacks, there are experiences, there there are casualties in war. And when you come across casualties, don't be surprised. Matter of fact, Timothy, uh, you might need to be prepared for that, right? Verse 6 says, Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Have, Timothy, have nothing to do with these irreverent, silly ideas. They're going to come your way and they're going to come into the church. I hope when we walk away from this enchanted series, you use that word often. I hope you're able to identify the silly myths of living a life for imminent things. Right here and right now, I hope you walk away from this series having me mock that enough for you to remember. That's a stupid idea for you to base your life on. Or... Personal flourishing, being the gatekeeper of whatever it is you will and won't do next in your life. I hope you remember that I had an attitude about that. Because Timothy was being told by Paul, these are irreverent, silly myths, Timothy. And they need to be seen for that. And part of his responsibility was to expose those things to the church that he was leading. So I'm... We're taking some time beginning this year because the enchantment in this world is thick and it runs deep. And if you're sitting in this room thinking, yeah, yeah, I I think I see it. You don't even begin to see the rest of the iceberg. Trust me, you don't. I've been staring at this for quite a while and praying and wrestling with it for quite a while. And I'm pretty convinced I don't see much of it. So if you've become a specialist just by listening to a few weeks, you, you might want to rethink that. This stuff is in our veins and it is affecting you in ways that you're not really aware that it is. And Timothy was to point this out. Verse 10, he says, for this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things, Timothy. And then Paul comes back two, three, four years later and writes the same thing again. This is obviously an issue that Paul is concerned about. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. If you find it difficult to fulfill the purposes of God in your day, do not be surprised. No one in the Bible said it was going to be easy. Only the modern preachers are making it sound easy. They're making it sound like there's just there's these little spells you can cast. They're called prayer and faith. And if you mix it together just right in your little laboratory and pour it on your life, you get whatever you ask for and life gets smooth and there is no problems and you get rewarded and prosperity is at every turn. Oh, you're not having all that? Well, it must either be because there's sin in your life or there's a lack of faith. Hey, can I just introduce those geniuses to the, this idea? There is sin in everyone's life and there's a lack of faith in everyone's life. 
So if, if God can only do when we get all that just right, God won't be doing much. Let me just promise you that. Last time I checked, it just took a mustard seed to turn the world upside down. But I'm not trying to discourage us from building our faith and, and from walking in righteousness. But this, this stuff has introduced ideas to us that that's the remedy for difficult. So that is, is horribly disabling for us. Because when you venture into the land this year and you're going to get into a setting and it's going, you're going to find difficulty, it's going to blindside you. And you're not going to know how to respond to it because you don't have a category for it. It's like, well, life's not supposed to be this way. I'm just knocked on my heels. Okay, I hope this message helps you stand this way and not like, I'm ready to just tip over. Because I think everything's supposed to be positive and everything's supposed to be easy. There is a war in the land that you're traveling across. Listen to what you know, Paul highlights this for Timothy. He says, there's going to be difficult times. Here's why. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Right? And you know what's interesting here is this is what we do with passages like this, right? Yep, there will be people like that. <laughs> Amen, Paul. I think I know a few myself, actually. (laughs) Well, they're tough to be around, I can tell you that much. You know, and we don't ever stop and consider that the reality of the church testimony from the Old Testament through the New is that, you know, you and I breathe secondhand smoke and it gets in us. And we begin to adopt some of these things at some level, not full-blown. We're not fully sold into these ideas, but at some level, there's a little bit of loving myself in me going on today and this is why I just think this is so important for me to see this because I know I'm tempted by the same stuff that's tempting the world I'm tempted to have this personal flourishing centurion stand at the gate of my life and see is that going to work for me is that going to reward me is that going to be easy will you be comfortable And if I answer no enough of those times, then you don't get to come in. (laughs) Whoever you are or whatever you are, I'm just not going there. And something in me actually feels like that's the right thing. Yeah, well, you know, it's just not right for me. It's just not the right time for me. And that feels right. And you know, in your mind, right now you're going, you know, we shouldn't shouldn't say that? Uh, God calls people to do some stuff that really doesn't feel like it's right for them. Have you noticed that? The Son of God is about to go to a cross. And what he feels in the Garden of Gethsemane is the weight of humanity's sin being accumulated and set upon him. And the judgment for those sins would become his judgment when he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And the fact that the next step involves nails in his wrist and the death on that cross means the answer was, it's not possible, son. Not everything God God has for you is easy. Sometimes the future has difficulty in it. And this war, this war is a strange war. 
right? We're used to wars that are fought over there. We're Americans. Almost nothing ever gets fought on our soil. So most wars are foreign to us. Wars of ideas. You know, we got daily news wars. Democrats fighting Republicans. Black fighting white. Uh, rich and poor, haves and haves not. Religious and secular. This war is a little different. It's a little weird because it's, it's not a war over there. It's not a war out there. It's a war in here. Right, one of the most prolific writers in the history of the church was a man named John Owen who wrote about this in 1675 in London. This chapter article was published. It was quite lengthy and they were into really big titles at that time. Here's his title. The Nature, Power, Deceit, and Prevalency of the Remainders of Indwelling Sin in Believers. <laughs> Did you get all that? So years later, we're not in the big titles like that, so a guy like Chris Lungard writes a book trying to borrow from John Owen's insights, and he simply calls his book, The Enemy Within. That's a great title. And the story of humanity, every day of our lives, trying to do life on planet Earth, is a story that deals in some way with the enemy within. You don't escape it. No one escapes it. It's, it's all over the place. You know, well-written literature, music will capture this dimension of this internal warfare in man, right? Let me just take, I don't know what your selections are, but if I'm going to consult literature and I'm going to consult music, I'm going to go after the Lord of the Rings and Switchfoot, okay? Just so that you know where my mental capacity is. Thank you. I knew I'd get an amen from Phil. All right, so here's this scene, and it, 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 is, it is a meaningful scene, right? The Lord of the Rings, this moment where the, the fellowship of the ring, these guys trying to manage this dangerous ring that they're carrying around that's corrupting everyone's desires. It's going after the heart. And it's, it seized one of the guys named Boromir. And he has turned in his heart. And he's turned on Frodo, who's the, the main character carrying this ring to its destruction. And in this scene, Aragorn, one of his friends, comes up. And there's been this attack on Frodo by Boromir and... Into the, here's the scene. Aragorn comes up and says, Frodo! Frodo turns. It has taken Boromir. Aragorn says, where is the ring? And Frodo recoils. He says, stay away. Frodo, I swore to protect you. Frodo asks this question. But can you protect me from yourself? Aragorn, do you know what's inside of you? Do you know what you are capable of? That you who swore to me to do me good and to protect me, do you know you could do what Boromir did? You could turn on me for your own reasons? Because there is a war inside of you going on. Switchfoot wrote a song called Ammunition. It says, blame it on what you've been through. Blame it on what you're into. Blame it on your religions. Blame it on politicians. But we've been blowing up. We're the issue. It's our condition. We've been blowing up. We're the issue. Our detonation. We've been blowing up. We're the issue. We are the fuse and the ammunition. 
But how many of us, I mean, I, I get that. I get that song. I get society lives in that song. It's not me. It's the people around me. It's the way I was raised. It's the difficulties of my times. You know, blame it on what you've been through. And what that does is it, it misinforms you. You've got to fix this problem now. You're no longer looking for the enemy within. You're trying to figure out who the enemy is around you. Somebody else has got the problem. Somebody else didn't do right by me. So I'm here in this place. Life is upside down. I hate where I am. I've got emotional problems and struggles and difficulties. How did I get here? How did I become damaged good? Somebody didn't raise me right. Somebody didn't treat me right. I had bad experiences. And I'm not negating that all those things were influential. But you can't negate that the reality of your life is you are a walking stick of dynamite with a fuse dangling off of it. You're explosive. You are. You can blow up in a moment. Remember the cartoon character Pogo the Possum? His famous line, we have met the enemy and he is us. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm, you know, for everybody who's been discipled by positivity, this, this doesn't feel real positive, I know. I'm, I, don't, I don't think it's wrong for us to delve into what Scripture makes clear to us, even though it doesn't sound real positive. Because I'm, I'm not trying to train you to be positive. I'm... I'm I'm trying to guard you from being surprised. And I'm trying to prepare you for war. That's a reality. War is a reality. And around this room, right, I can stare in every face and I just know stories. I know your stories. So I, I, can, I can see the realities of these have been played out in your life. You have relationships with people. I hope this equips you to have relationships with people. I, I hope you better understand not only that you enter into a relationship with a war going on on the inside of you, but did you ever stop and think that person enters into a relationship with you with a war going on inside of them? If you're going to have a relationship with people, if you're going to cross the land and not do it isolated on your own, you're going to have a relationship with people. How many of you guys know that having relationships is risky? Let's see if we can be honest. How many of y'all have ever been hurt by another human being? Okay, most of y'all, your arms don't work then. It's risky, isn't it? And if you want to be safe, you can't follow God. You want life to be safe and feel comfortable? Then you can't follow God. Decide today, I'm done following God. Because God is going to lead you into unsafe places. And he's going to join you to people like Aragorn. And you're going to ask them that question. Can you protect me from you? And the closer you get to people, the more you're concerned about that answer, aren't you? Your spouse can hurt you like nobody can hurt you. And sometimes we do hurt each other. And it's a legitimate question, isn't it? For you to ask your spouse, can you protect me from you? Not just from life, from all that's going to happen. 
Can you protect me from you? My parents and children. It's a close relationship. It's a relationship full of fumbles and development and challenges. It's not safe. Can I just tell you, it's not safe to have children. Any of you considering having children? It's not safe. I don't know what Gerber bottle you've been reading, but that's a cute picture. It's just a moment. Right after they took that picture of that child, it became unsafe, okay? (laughs) At some point, children legitimately can turn to their parents and say, "Can, can you protect me from you? Because you could hurt me. And at some point, parents can turn to their children and say, can you protect me from you? And I know stories, I'm staring around the room right now, and I know stories where both have a problem. And it doesn't, it's not easy, is it? See, these are realistic, difficult places. Please, please don't, don't, be, don't be foolish. I don't want to chase this thought, but don't be foolish. You know, get, have a good picture. I, mean, I should have put a picture up there. You as a stick of dynamite with little arms hanging off of you and a big fuse that dangles and, and bounces off of stuff. Right? If you know that about yourself, right, I've got a fuse that at any moment, it could, it just, all it needs is a fire to get around and it'll, it'll light up and then I'll light up and then I will blow up. And the people who are near me and around me, I will blow them up too. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? You got around something that you didn't know what it would do. You were unwise in getting that close and your little fuse just kind of dangled next to the little flame that was right there and and it traveled and it, and it took a while, maybe it took a year, maybe it took a couple of years, maybe it took five, ten years. And then it detonated. Now, what do you want to blame that on? You can blame it on something, right? There's a whole bunch of things. But one thing that you can't deny that this reality from Scripture serves up to us is you are explosive. You are made of stuff that's explodable. And then you will get in a relationship with other people. You will do other things. And you are capable of blowing that thing up. So, you know, here's here's the challenging, this is why God needs to be God to us and nothing else can. Can you protect me from you? No, you can't. Unless you walk by the Spirit, I will be protected. But ultimately, my hope is not that you can protect me from you but that God will be God to me even if you blow up. Because this is not a safe world. It's a war zone. And so there will be explosions. And some of them will be really close to you. And some of them will be far removed from you. But your hope is not that everybody will keep their fuses away from the fire. Your hope is in the God who is greater than the explosions that are going to go off around you. And he will be healing for you and hope for you and help for you and care for you and leadership for you and faithful to you in that day. This is why we can follow God and take risks. But listen carefully to this thought from John Piper. 
He says, as I look across the Christian landscape, I, I think it's fair to say concerning sin, quote, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. That should be lightly, not lately. I hate those things that finish your words for you when you type. Should be lightly in Jeremiah. I take this, he says, to refer to leaders who should be helping the church know and feel the seriousness of indwelling sin and how to fight it and kill it. Instead, the depth and complexity and ugliness and danger of sin in professing Christians is either minimized, you know, since we're already justified, or it's psychologized as a symptom of woundedness rather than corruption, right? Did you get this way because somebody did something to you? Or were you corrupt from the moment you came into the world? The second statement is the truth. This is a radically light healing. I call it a tragedy because by making life, quote, easier for ourselves in minimizing the nature and seriousness of our sin, we become greater victims of it. Thank you, Oprah and the positivity world. We are, in fact, not healing ourselves. Those who say that they already feel bad enough without being told about the corruptions of indwelling sin misread the path to peace. When our people have not been taught well about the real nature of sin and how it works and how to put it to death, most of the miseries people report are not owing to the disease, but its symptoms. They feel a general malaise and don't know why. Their marriages are at the breaking point. They feel weak in their spiritual witness and devotion. Their workplace is embattled. Their church is tense with unrest. Their fuse is short with their children, etc. They report these miseries as if they were the disease, right? This is the symptoms of the war on the inside. And they want the symptoms removed. We proceed to heal the wound of people lightly. We look first and mainly for circumstantial causes for the misery, present or past. If we're good at it, we can find partial causes and give some relief. But the healing is light. We have not done the kind of soul surgery that is possible only when the soul doctor knows the kinds of things John Owen talks about in his books. And when the patient is willing to let the doctor's scalpel go deep. Are we willing to get beyond treating symptoms? Fix the conflict in my marriage. Help me get along with this. Improve this aspect of my life. There's a war that's going to travel with you to the next relationship. And it's going to travel with you into the next part of your life. If you don't learn to fight the war and you just treat symptoms... Never, ever overcome some of these issues that come with the war. Right, so why, uh, why Sarks and Numa? Why are these our characters? Well, here's where we get our characters. Sarks and Numa. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, educates us about this war by saying, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The word for flesh and spirit is sarks and pneuma. And we read this way, but I say walk by the pneuma and you will not gratify the desires of the sarks. For the desires of the sarks are against the pneuma and the desires of the pneuma are against the sarks. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then, then this verse travels into some of the specifics. Right, when Sarks goes to war, he represents certain things. He is fighting for certain things. He has an allegiance and a loyalty to certain things. Here's what's on his list. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19. Now, the works of the Sarks are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. When Sarks shows up in your life, he is a broker for those things. He deals in multiple policies and he will sell you any one of them that he can. And when he comes to go to war, this is what he wants to ally you with. This is what he offers you, and this is what he wants you to be loyal to. That list right there. So that's one warring faction inside of us. But there's another faction with another agenda and loyalties in a different place. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of Numa, is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. When the Spirit shows up in this war, this is, this is the location he is drawing us to. This is what he offers to us. This is what he contends for us to put our trust in and our faith in. And every moment of our lives in this world, this will not continue in the heaven, but in this world, that war is happening right now inside of you. Sarks and Numa, sworn enemies who go to war with each other. And you and I live in this this tug-of-war reality. It is the reality of your life. On one hand, let me just think through some of these things. On the one hand, there's Sarks who comes into your world perhaps with sexual immorality, some kind of overextended abusive pattern of drunkenness or or any kind of giving into appetite. So here comes Sarks pulling, luring, doing everything in his power to draw you into agreement with these things. And then on the other side is Numa. If you're a Christian and you're born again and the spirit of God is in you, he is waging war, pulling you into self-control. A self-control that's not like 
forfeiting the ultimate good. A self-control that has its own reward in it. A self-control that brings its own blessing. A self-control that experiences the goodness and the, and the glory of God as you and I embrace it. That shows up. So at any moment in your life, there is, you know, let's say there's sexual immorality with all of its tentacles and edges and pornography and everything that's involved with that. And there's self-control. All right, now, let me be careful here, but I think I need to say something a little bit jarring, but let me just be a little bit careful. There are things in us that could be unusually interacting with us in that moment. There are some things like that. Maybe there's a place for having to treat some of that in a particular therapeutic way, even a medical way. But, but be, be aware of this. That's, that's a lot of unexplored territory and undefined territory. There's a reason why, sorry, Anthony, but there's a reason why doctors practice things. I don't know if they ever get good at it, but they practice a lot, right? <laughs> So I'm not sure we've figured out all the psyche dimensions and what's going on on the inside. And it's shifted in the last 30 years. It's shifted. So there's new ideas operating in that world. But, but here's, what's, here's what's the danger. In, in a world that's imminent, in a world that's lost its transcendence, in a world that has pushed God to the edge of its universe, in a world that is natural-minded, we want to fix everything with a pill. You can't take a pill for this. Galatians chapter 5, there's no pill for Galatians chapter 5. And I'm not sure what exactly that pill is doing to help. I do think sometimes pills are the right thing to help people in certain circumstances. So don't, don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. But whether you do or do not take the pill, you still live in Galatians chapter 5. You still live in a war. And there is no pill that can fight for you. There's nothing you can do to let something else manage that. The reason why Paul presents this to you is there's a war going on between Sarks and Numa, and you're going to have to engage that war. And you can't blame it on what you've been through, and you can't blame it on what you're into, and on your parents, and on your background. The war exists for everyone. You are made of explosive stuff. It is corruptible. And whether your parents helped to corrupt it or you did that as a side job habit. Somehow that corruption got a little deeper, a little more effective, a little more influential. And at the end of the day, whether you can figure out who to appropriate the blame for, you still have a war on your hands. And I don't know how much of this is, you know, well, maybe what is this like 10% pill, 90% war. I I don't know. But I can tell you this, you will never take the war off the playing field of your life. And there's nothing that takes the place of spirit-given self-control in your life. Did you hear me say that? There is nothing that takes the place of spirit-given self-control in your life. So if you're sitting around going, you know, I'd really like to do something about this pornography thing. I'm, you know, I'm just, I don't know, I'm just waiting for God to do something or... Um, How's this for a worn out suggestion? How about some self-control? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Doesn't that sound like, Keith, do you have any idea what you're talking about? Oh, I don't know. I'm just talking about the Bible. 
I'm talking about the God who explains what's really going on behind the scenes. And I know there's all these forces and there's all these addictive powers and blah, 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 blah. And I don't say that that doesn't have some reality to it. But I just can't stand the fact that we live in a day when the Bible can't tell us to have self-control and it means anything to us. Because somehow I'm the person that that doesn't apply to. These rich gifts of God, the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life to transfer my enchantment to another address so that the momentary pleasures of that pornography can't possibly compete with the glorious pleasures of knowing God and the Spirit of God awakens in me an enchantment with Him that makes me go, what was that again? What was that again? And I have self-control as a result. But that's like, nobody believes that anymore. Well, welcome to the land of enchantment where we don't believe God anymore. Because you can't put that idea in a test tube and come out the other end with a guy wearing a white coat who explains that this is how that works. Well, no, you can't put a lot of life in a test tube and do that. There's this thing called faith in an invisible God who does stuff that he doesn't fully explain to anybody and everybody. And if I put my faith there, this war is a different war. My, my heart is affected differently. My life will be changed differently. And listen, don't, don't anybody fall prey to the busy writing of our noisy world that tells you that this stuff just doesn't work. This, this is the reality. All that other stuff has got question marks sitting all over it. As a matter of fact, if you do a little bit of homework... Whatever's being suggested or prescribed to you, 30 years ago, nobody would have done that. That's the dumbest idea. We, it, that's not even why you're doing that. The reason you're doing that's over here. And then 30 years earlier than that? That's stupid. Not, no, that's not why that's happening. So there's question marks sitting all over this stuff. But God has said, there's a war going on inside of you. And the flesh is making war against the spirit. That's a fact. That's clear. And you will not escape this world without going to war. You you will go to war or you will be devoured by sarks. Those are your only two options. You will make no peace with him and he, he will never negotiate with you. He will make you think he's negotiating with you. And here's an interesting thing here. I won't I won't jump into this, but The issue in this passage is not so much what you're doing, it's the desire to do what you're doing. This is where we're late in the game. When we go to fight the battles that we fight, we're too late in the game. Because the passage says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So before the flesh actually got you to cooperate with immorality or idolatry or fits of anger. Before it did that, it worked on your desires first. Then you would give permission to do it only after you lost the battle of desire. So if you're waiting around, if your Christianity has turned into, hey, well, this is what the battle is. I just know I'm not supposed to do that. That thing right there, that's, that's wrong. Christians don't do that. I'm not supposed to do that. You know, by the time you stand on top of that thing and make a decision not to do it, you are way too late. The battle in this passage is in the desire category, which is way back here. What made you start wanting that? Do you want that? Can you be honest with yourself? What, what is it that you want right there that would make you get closer and closer and closer to that? 
Right? Romans 13 says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's not just action here and choices, it's the desires. Ephesians 2 says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. 1 Peter 2, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Right? What's this war? It's a war of desires. It's not just a war of actions. It's a war of desires. And you have to fight it at the level of what I want, not just what I'm doing. Now, listen, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm slightly opening a can here. That is, it's not a can. It's, it's, it's a drum. It's a storage tank uh, at Norco that I'm opening up right here. All right, but, well, you know, can, can you teach us about this? Uh, not this morning, No. All I can do this morning is introduce you to the fact that there's a war. And the reason why I feel like I need to introduce us is because too many Christians today aren't fighting. We've grown numb to this. We're out of touch with it. And we can't figure out our lives. We can't explain our lives, why they are the way they are. So here, um, come up and ask me afterwards. Enemy Within, Chris Lungard, Worthy Read. Excellent new book, Devoted to God, Blueprints for Sanctification by Sinclair Ferguson. If you want something really, really chunky and difficult to read, Overcoming Sin and Temptation by John Owen. All right, these would be just off the top of my head, just books I grabbed on the way in here. Say, you know, if you really are engaging the warfare and you don't know how to fight, there's nothing that says you need to wait until the next time we preach on it. There's this thing called the Bible. You read it, and there's these really cool things called books. They're really helpful, right? So if you're going, hey, well, all right, teach us to fight. Here, pick up a book. Go teach yourself to fight. One last thought from Mr. Paul Tripp. He says, why do people do the things they do? Why can your toddler be so contrary? Why, do your friend, why did your friend get upset in the middle of, a, of the conversation? Why is your teenager so angry? Why is Amy swallowed up by depression and despair? Why would a man risk his family for 20 minutes of sexual pleasure? Why do you get angry in traffic? Why is it that once a once romantic couple now engaged in guerrilla warfare? Why is Bill so driven in his career? Why is Sue so critical and controlling? Why does George speak so bluntly and unkindly? Why is your daughter afraid of what her friends will think? Why does Pete refuse to talk? Why do people do the things they do? The simplest most biblical answer is the heart. They do out of the desires of their heart. That's why Proverbs in that passage says, watch over your heart with all diligence because out of it flow the issues of life. Your heart desires things. Sarks wants it to desire what it has to offer and Numa wants your heart to desire what it has to offer. All right, since I can't explore the whole realm of indwelling sin and how to go to war with it, can I, can I just do one thing? 
Can I just talk to you about whether or not you're going to war and whether or not you're willing to fight and whether or not you're willing to fight to the death? There was a moment in history, I'm going to read you this long thought in closing, from a man named Mr. Winston Churchill. This guy wrote a very interesting article by, about Churchill titled, The Day Churchill Saved Britain from the Nazis. If you're looking for one of the decisive moments in the last world war and a turning point in the history of the world, then come with me. Let's go to a dingy room in the House of Commons. The decor is predictable, green leather, brass studs, heavy coarse-grained oak paneling and Pugin wallpaper. A few prints, slightly, squiffily hung. And on the afternoon of May 28, 1940, smoke. Most members of the public would easily have been able to recognize the main characters. There were seven of them in all, and they were the War Cabinet of Britain. This was their ninth meeting since May 26, and they had yet to come up with an answer to the existential question that faced the world. These days, we dimly believe that the Second World War was won with Russian blood and American money. And though that is in some ways true, it is also true that without Winston Churchill, Hitler would almost certainly have won. At several moments, he was the beaver who damned the flow of events. And never did he affect the course of history more profoundly than in 1940. The question before the meeting was very simple. Should Britain fight? Was it reasonable for young British troops to die in a war that showed every sign of being lost? Or should the British do some kind of deal that might well save hundreds of thousands of lives? I don't think many people of my generation are fully conscious of how close we came to such a deal. There were serious and influential voices who wanted to begin, quote, negotiations. The Italian embassy had sent a message. He said that this was Britain's moment to seek mediation via Italy. This was not just a simple overture from Mussolini. Churchill knew exactly what was going on. He told Halifax, one of the other men, to forget it. Britain had been at war with Germany and had been since September 1st the previous year. It was a war for freedom and for principle. The minute Britain accepted some Italian offer of mediation, Churchill knew that the sinews of resistance would relax. A white flag would be raised over Britain. I I, I hope you're connecting the dots here to this message. You cannot negotiate with Sarks. And the moment you do, you will relax. In 1936, Lady Nellie Cecil noted that nearly all of her relatives were tender to the Nazis. And the reason was simple. In the 30s, your average Toff was much more fearful of Bolshevism and communism's alarming ideology of redistribution than they were fearful of Hitler. Hitler wasn't as well known. Communism, for those who were wealthy, was the thing to be resisted. In seeking peace, he had the support of many British people at all levels of society. And so the argument went on between Halifax and the Prime Minister for the crucial hour. It was a stalemate. And it was now, according to most historians, that Churchill played his master stroke. He announced that the meeting would be adjourned and would begin again at 7 p.m. He then convened the cabinet of 25 ministers from every department, many of whom were to hear him as prime minister for the first time. He began calmly enough, I have thought carefully in these last days whether it was part of my duty 
to consider entering into negotiations with that man. And he ended with his almost Shakespearean climax. And I am convinced that every one of you would rise up and tear me down from my place if I were for one moment to contemplate parley or surrender. If this Long Island story of ours is to end at last. Let it end only when each one of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. This guy had a way with words, didn't he? (laughs) At this, the men in that room were so moved that they cheered and shouted and some of them ran around and clapped him on the back. Churchill had ruthlessly dramatized and personalized the debate. By the time the war cabinet resumed at 7 p.m., the debate was over. Halifax abandoned his cause. Churchill had the clear and noisy backing of the cabinet. Within a year of that decision to fight and not to negotiate, 30,000 British men, women, and children had been killed, almost all of them at German hands. Weighing up these alternatives, a humiliating peace or a slaughter of the innocents, It is hard to imagine any modern British politician having the guts to take Churchill's line. He had the vast and almost reckless moral courage to see that fighting on would be appalling, but that surrender would be even worse. And he was right. And history shows he was right. Eric, you can come back up here. You know, the only thing that history had going for it in that moment was Adolf Hitler wasn't completely understood by those seeking to negotiate with that man. At some point there were those who were ignorant of Hitler and thought there was something cooperative in him. Something that would avoid harm and bestow good in him. We should negotiate. Can, can I just tell you, there is nothing cooperative in Sarks. There's nothing in Sarks that wants to think about your good. Only your destruction. You dare not negotiate with him. When he comes and makes an offer to you, when he comes and makes something attractive, it will not end pretty. It will indestructibly, it will be horrible. And all of us face a vulnerability to that. Now the, the, the good news in what Paul says to the Galatians is that God has made us capable to fight in this war. Before we knew Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, the Bible gives you no capability to fight the flesh. That's all you've got. But by the work of the Spirit, I now have enablement and power and a work that gives me fresh enchantment with God. That gives me the means to fight a war against sarks. But what you started with is what I want to end with. Do not be surprised as you venture into the land of your life. This war goes with you. It's it's in you. And when you encounter its difficulty and its trials and its testing you and its disorientingness, its temptations and its moments where you're tempted to give in and negotiate with it, do not be surprised. 
stand in that moment and say, I, 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 knew, I knew this would be in the land. I, I knew this was coming. It just was a matter of when and where and how exactly it would present itself. But maybe you, you entered here today, and, and I have this concern. I have this concern in the body of Christ in general, and I don't spare us from that concern as well. In, in a world that's taught us to just seek reward and to seek ease and to seek personal benefit and pleasure, we don't want to do difficult things. We don't want to sacrifice 30,000 lives for a cause. We, we, I don't even know if I want to pick my Bible up. You know, do, I want to, do, I, do I want to fight? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I want to fight. Well, what's the alternative? Do we want to sit down and negotiate with Sarks? You want to try and get a peace thing going with him? You know, saying the Bible doesn't present any peace. There's no peace until Jesus returns. And he shuts all that down. That will bring peace. Lasting peace, eternal peace. But until that day, there is no negotiating. And what I would hope for every one of us is that you and I would lie choking in our own blood. Fighting for the glory of God in our lives and in our midst. In our relationships and all the things that are hard that we don't even want to do them. But somehow an enchantment would seize our hearts that that's what I want more than anything else. Don't give me the easy pathway. Stop praying for that. Ask God for a glorious pathway. And ask him for a work of the spirit inside of us that can take us down that kind of a pathway. Rather than begging God, give me something easy. Give me something good. Give me something positive. Lord, give me something glorious. And let me walk there. For your sake and for your story in my life. Let's stand up together. Lord, you know, you know our story here. You know us. You know that throughout this room there are experiences in life that the flesh blew up. And we were close to that explosion. And we were affected. Our ears still ring. We are fearful of another explosion. Maybe for some of us here, we were the explosion. We still see charred remains and pieces of things that once were. Or may we not be surprised and paralyzed by that. You said the future had war in it wouldn't be tidy it would be messy there would be moments of advance and moments of retreat there would be victories and there would be losses or this is the nature of war so my prayer for us Lord we venture into 2018 
Lord, let us not be surprised at the fiery trials that go on around us. For it's a war zone. And let us be wise. Let us be smart. You have taken us behind the scenes. We, we don't have to be those people ignorant about the war. We don't have to fall prey to blaming it on somebody over there or something in the past or trying to unravel our lives from somebody else's activity. We know the war is within with our own desires and our own fears and our own desperate ambitions. So Lord, would you take this truth deeper into our lives? Lord, would you today at least posture our hearts that there is a war that must be fought. There will not be peace this side of heaven. We don't get to decide to sit this one out. It's a war inside of us. Lord, teach us. Teach us about your Holy Spirit. Teach us about your power. Teach us about being enchanted with you and having hearts that long for and delight themselves in you that cause Sarks to be that man we have no desire to negotiate with for he offers nothing to us that we are interested in. Numa has captured our hearts and he has won us. We are enchanted with you and with you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.